Welcome to Software at Scale, a podcast where we discuss the technical stories behind large software applications. I'm your host, Utsav Shah, and thank you for listening. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Software at Scale podcast. Joining me here today is Ben Afiri, the CEO and co-founder of Commodore, a Kubernetes platform in many ways. Ben was previously a software engineer and product manager at Google. Ben, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much. Glad to be here. Yeah, so to start off with, I want to understand something from your background and Commodore more specifically. Why work on a Kubernetes platform? Like, What gets you excited about Kubernetes so much that you decide, you know what, this job at Google is interesting, but I'm going to work on a company that makes managing Kubernetes easier. Like, Why do that? Yeah, well, it takes me back like three years ago. It looks right now so far away, but, you know, three years ago, obviously, Kubernetes was already very hyped. You know, obviously, a lot of companies talked about Kubernetes. Google, obviously, internally using solely uh-huh. Kubernetes, right? We call it internally Borg, but, you know, basically, uh-huh. it's the internal name of what today known as externally as Kubernetes. And, but it was very in the beginning of the journey of like real mass adoption from, you know, enterprises to use Kubernetes, right? And when ETL, my partner, and I talked about what we see currently that is happening and how we see the future, we had this feeling that microservices is going to be, you know, de facto the standard architecture for running application and managing applications. And we saw the overhead and the complexity of managing by yourself, the deployment, you know, the resource management, the options to scale, etc., for environments that have hundreds or thousands of microservices. And for us, we kind of intuitively knew that Kubernetes have a very high odds of eventually becoming the standard or de facto the obvious choice to manage microservices. And for us, it meant basically that it can become something so significant that eventually it can become known as, you know, the operating system for cloud applications. And we basically took a bet saying, you know, if it's going to happen, if indeed this is the case, if indeed Kubernetes is going to become what, you know, Linux did for, for operating system for servers, but for, for applications in the cloud, this can be interesting, right? Like the challenges and therefore the opportunities that will be derived from that can be huge. And both of us wanted to be working on something that will create real impact. And we figured out that we didn't know exactly what to do there, but we figured out that there are going to be a lot of opportunities and challenges if indeed Kubernetes will become the obvious choice and the standard. And you know, three years later, we just read a report a couple of days back that more than 80% of the companies, not only cloud native companies, but overall companies in the USA are planning to adapt Kubernetes in the next three years. So for us, you know, at least in retrospect, the bet now looks much more reasonable than, than it was mm-hmm. a couple of years back. No, I, I certainly would say in practice that's worked out. The question that comes to mind from even that report is why, like, why are people interested in adopting Kubernetes, right? Like, or why, why have a container orchestration platform in the first place? Like, what is your perspective? Yeah. So I will say that like everything else in life, there is the, the human factor, the, the psychological factors and the technical aspects. In terms of like the human factor, there is no doubt that today Kubernetes is hyped and today Kubernetes is let's call it the obvious choice or the standard choice when it comes to where should I and how should I, you know, deploy and run my application. So, you know, once companies like Google, Netflix, Amazon, etc., are using it and are sponsoring it in a way, it does make every other company think twice 
if they're doing something wrong, if they're not using, you know, the best in class tools that those companies are using. So there is, I think, the human factor that made at least some waves and caused some trend to happen a couple of years back. Obviously, when it comes to the technical aspects, Kubernetes does come with a huge promise, right? Basically, you know, it takes a lot of the complexity of managing your own deployment secret, you know, scale up, scale down, and resource management around Docker files. And, you know, basically, it really allows companies to scale very, very, very fast. Now, for companies that have hyper growth, which was all of the companies up until a couple of months back, right? That the growth was the first thing they focused on most of the companies. Kubernetes is allowing those companies with not a lot of overhead to be able to grow very fast and to scale very fast without the need either to pay to specialists, et cetera, or to change your hardware and software, you know, every other week. So being able to scale in a cost-effective way, I think it's something that is very appealing for most companies. And I think Kubernetes, you know, comes with this promise and in most cases, even able to fulfill this promise, right? And we also saw that in the last couple of years, it became very, you know, enterprise ready with, you know, security features and compliance features baked in, et cetera, which made it also appealing for the Fortune 100 companies. And today we, I can say that we're also working with, you know, huge banks and airline companies that five years ago, I think it was a dream for them to adopt Kubernetes, but today... All of them are, you know, either migrating to Kubernetes or just finalize the migration process. So it is quite amazing to see how, you know, common and how adopted Kubernetes became in the last three to five years. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And what are you seeing? Are you seeing, you know, customers using Amazon EKS, like the managed Kubernetes platforms that cloud providers are providing? Are they rolling their own? What have you seen? So it is a mixture. I would say that definitely, at least from our customers, the, the segment that we're approaching, the most common use case is a managed service from Amazon to obviously Microsoft and Google. We do have customers that are running Kubernetes on-prem, and we also have customers that have hybrid cloud or sometimes even hybrid between on-prem and cloud from obvious different reasons, you know, the disaster recovery and you know, supporting different regions and compliance and regulations. So we actually see all of the above, but I think at least for us, the most common one is is managed services from the cloud providers. Mm -hmm. And last question on this thread, when do you see someone, you know, break out from, oh, I used to run on like bare metal or like EC2 or like directly on like a container orchestration platform to I should be using Kubernetes. Like when do you see people like deciding that, that migration is worth it for them. I'm wondering if there's like, you know, a tipping point and, you know, just inflexibility or some kind of issue. Yeah, it's a good point. I think, you know, from what we see, at least, there are like two different paths for companies to migrate to Kubernetes. The first path is more of like, you know, a commando way, like, you know, a small unit, a small team started to run their own internal tools or their new project with Kubernetes. It doesn't affect the legacy. It doesn't affect the other teams. It doesn't affect the other services. But it's just like, you know, small thing at, at the beginning that runs on Kubernetes. And eventually, you know, it gradually increases. And more and more, you know, internal tools and more and more processes are being built on top of Kubernetes. And then you have like a new project or a new product that you want to launch. And someone say, hey, you know, let's run this on Kubernetes as well, because we already have some good experience with that. And it gradually increases to some tipping point where the organization makes a strategic decision 
to migrate all of the legacy now to Kubernetes or to at least to decide that from now on, everything new is being developed will run on Kubernetes, right? So this is like one motion that we see that it basically starts from like a very small scrapey team and evolves. The second motion that we see is that a VP of infrastructure, a VP of platform, or sometimes even the C-level in some organization decided from cost-effective reasons, decide from security reasons, decide from budget reasons sometimes, that they need to choose other platform. And then when they examine the alternatives, Kubernetes is usually the most common one or the most standard one to use right now. If you want to migrate from your old, you know, VMware or even, you know, on-prem machines and servers to the cloud. So it can either come like bottom-up or top-down, but I think that in both motions today, Kubernetes is like, let's say, not only the top choice, but also I think it's also like started to be the top choice by far from the other alternatives out there. So this is at least from what we say. I assume there are tons of different ways to evolve to Kubernetes, but from our experience, is what we see. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. And like where I'm seeing the really the benefit of this platform is that it's just so flexible, but it works at scale. It feels like that's how you can summarize it. Like whatever company you are, you can use a managed service, you can use on-prem, you have all of these different needs, you want to put sidecars, this, that. It really does allow you to do anything that you would need from like an orchestration platform. Is that fair to say? Well, yeah, it is very flexible. This is one of the things that I think make it so common. Mm-hmm. But the flip side of being flexible is being complex, right? So yeah. I think, you know, it does come with a price and we can talk about the price later on. But I definitely think that it's flexibility. And as you mentioned, you can run it almost anywhere, right? Like in the edge, in the cloud, on-prem, etc. It's what made it so, so common and so widespread across different organizations. Yeah. I'd love to talk about the price right now. What is the price of the flexibility and what have you seen? So... Look, you know, we're a huge fan of, of Kubernetes, obviously, right? But I think, you know, as, as we talked, most companies in the end of the day adopting microservices and, and Kubernetes, you know, from the promise of eventually running faster, right? Deploying more, creating even bigger competitive advantage, being able to move faster, creating less dependency between the teams, right? And in the end of the day, once companies are finishing the migration to Kubernetes and really try to utilize Kubernetes to get all of those traits, in some cases, they're hitting a wall. In some cases, it's not only that they're not getting what they wanted, they're even degrading their original situation. And we saw an interesting report from one of the incident management tools lately that the time spent on alerts and managing incidents and you know the day-to-day operations around your infrastructure, et cetera, in the last three years actually tripled since organization, you know, moved to this microservices environment and, and Kubernetes architecture. Now, you know, if you're spending three times more on those things, you probably don't move faster, you're probably not being more cost-effective, right? So sometimes an organization, you know, finish the migration and really try, you know, to, to now enjoy the fruits of that, it doesn't really work. And I think the reason for that is, Kubernetes is a very complex system, right? It's very distributed. It's very scattered. It is composed of thousands of different resources and events that fortunately or unfortunately changed constantly. And they have those non-trivial relations and connections, right? And being able to understand how all of those things work 
is mandatory when you're the person that needs to manage, operate, and troubleshoot Kubernetes, right? So, you know, if you're the person, if you're the team that basically needs not only to deploy code, but actually to own your application end-to-end, and this is what is expected for most organizations when it comes to their R&D, you are expecting your developers, you're expecting your, your team leads to be able to own it end-to-end, they need to have a very vast understanding and experience and know-how around how to do those things, right? And in most cases, they don't have this information, they don't have this knowledge, they don't have those even tools to do it efficiently. And I think I saw a survey recently that the number one concern about Kubernetes for organizations who just adopted Kubernetes is the steep learning curve they're facing. So, you know, we adopted Kubernetes or we migrated to Kubernetes, great. We have 5 to 10% of our workforce that is familiar with Kubernetes, that knows how to do those complex things in Kubernetes, but we have 90% of our R&D who doesn't really know what Kubernetes is and definitely don't know how to do efficiently the things that, you know, required to do when you have an issue, when you have an incident, when something is not working, right? And this dissonance between, okay, we migrated to Kubernetes to, okay, we're really utilizing Kubernetes, I think for a lot of organizations is, is very painful. And, you know, in Commodore, we're trying to help to mitigate its pain, obviously, right? But I think it is a very painful area for a lot of organizations. And if we're talking about the price, think about it that, you know, from the developer perspective, all of a sudden they have this new infrastructure they rely on. You know, they didn't choose it in most cases, right? They didn't, you know, had any say to that. And all of a sudden they're required to manage Kubernetes, to operate Kubernetes, to troubleshoot Kubernetes to use different tools and new processes to do that. And sometimes no one really taught them how to do that, right? No one really gave them the tools, the knowledge to do that, or even the time to get to know those new technologies and new ways to debug and new ways to understand what's going on, etc. So for them, it can be very frustrating. But also think about, you know, the platform teams, the DevOps and the SREs, since they are the ones that know how to do those things, immediately, in most cases, they become the bottleneck, right? They become the firefighters, they become the people who do the, all of the tickets. They become the people that everything is being escalated to. And those people that have tons of other initiatives to do are sometimes, you know, feel that, you know, they are the firefighters of the organizations. So we have this, you know, two different groups in your R&D that are currently, you know, not being cost-effective, right? Not doing their best job. And just a couple of days back, we saw a report by the, you know, Cloud Native Observability Organization that one out of five developers actually want to quit their job because of this frustration and because of, of those, you know, friction between the developers, the DevOps, the operations, the incident, re- incident response, and so on. So we definitely see that there is a price, right? It's not something that is going smooth and easy for most organizations. Yeah, that certainly tracks, right? And then when you speak about a steep learning curve when you're trying to adopt a tool, like Kubernetes, like how shared is that learning curve across organizations? And what I'm trying to ask is, do you have to learn different aspects of like Kubernetes and like, does it break in different ways at different organizations? Or is it mostly once you understand how Kubernetes works at place A, you probably understand like 50 to 60% of how it works in place B. Like what kind of distinction do you see there? Yeah, I think that there is like an 80-20 rule here. I think that okay. 80% of the things around Kubernetes 
are similar from one organization to another. People are doing the same mistakes. People are following the same best practices. Obviously, you do need to blend it and to mix it with your own yeah. business logic. Obviously, we'll use different configuration and different architecture and different deployment strategy, et cetera, et cetera. But I would say that if you have, you know, five to seven years of experience operating and managing Kubernetes, it won't be impossible for you, you know, to onboard in a new organization, understand what's going on there and be able to operate things efficiently after a couple of weeks, definitely month. I will yeah. say that for a developer that, you know, never heard about Kubernetes and they're used to always, you know, one huge monolith that is being pushed or released, you know, every quarter to production on top of like EC2 machines, for those people all of a sudden to be able to, you know, being efficient in operating and managing their application on top of Kubernetes, this can be very, very painful and very tough and sometimes very frustrating thing to do. Yeah. And that's where like you can encode information about how Kubernetes works in the platform, right? Just thinking through what you're saying, a developer with five or seven years of Kubernetes experience, probably they're a hot commodity. Everyone wants to hire them. And just from the, all the surveys, it seems like that person will have job security for life. But you could also encode a lot of that information into a platform. And is that kind of what you envisioned with Commodore? That why don't we platformize all of the ways that makes this system hard to operationalize? Exactly, yeah. So we believe that, as you mentioned, the DevOps, the SREs, the people that have you know, the right experience and expertise, obviously you can also try to improve them and you know, to give them tools to make them more efficient. But to be honest, it will take them maybe from 90 or even 95 to, you know, 96 or 97, right? So like the impact you can create is not that significant. And also product-wise, it will probably be very, very hard to make those people more efficient, right? And to give them more insight or more automation to really, you know, significantly help them. Having said that, when we look on the developers or, you know, the data engineers, or everyone that is using Kubernetes as a customer, right? That they're building your application or pipelines on top of Kubernetes. Those people, we believe that we can take their efficiency and expertise in Kubernetes from a scale from zero to 100, let's say from 20 to 60 or 70, by giving them all of the automation and all of the tools baked in in a platform that basically simplified significantly the operation and management and troubleshooting aspects for their applications. So our thesis was, when we started the company, what if we can take the knowledge that already exists, right, for the DevOps and the senior SREs, and we can take their knowledge and expertise, and we can basically democratize what they're doing to the entire the organization, so every developer will be able to easily detect issues in Kubernetes, investigate them, and even remediate them independently and efficiently without the need to escalate to the DevOps or to the SRE, right? So basically, this is the entire reason why we founded Commodore. And this is basically what we do today. So we're actually offering an end-to-end -end platform for every engineer in the company, from the most junior developer to the head of engineering, to be able to do same things on top of Kubernetes, even though they don't have the same amount of expertise and knowledge around Kubernetes, but we mitigate it using our you know, methods and platform to significantly simplify those things for them. Is there a one wow moment kind of workflow that, you know, you see in like 
20 to 30 percent of demos or like when people use the product for the first time it's like this one thing that keeps annoying them about their kubernetes workflows that your system just like shows or like automates i'm wondering if there's like something like that that y'all have noticed yeah so you know obviously it's hard to say about one thing because there are so many different things we built in the last couple of years but i think one of the most annoying issues that is very repetitive across different customers is that who should care about which issue in Kubernetes? I will give you like the simplest example. I have a pod that is doing restarts, right? Everybody knows that like something that happens on a daily basis, unfortunately. Now we don't know if this is you know an infrastructure issue in the node. We don't know if it's an application issue in the specific deployment that tries to run this pod, etc. So we need to start you know, triaging the issue, right? You need to go one by one to different checks or different tools to try to understand if it's an application issue, if it's an infrastructure issue. And you do all of that just to understand if, you know, you or your team are the owners for that, or maybe it's another team, right? Like the DevOps or the SREs, if it's like a node issue, for example. So what we do in Commodore, it might sound very simple, but it saves actually a lot of efforts and resources. Whenever there is a problem in the pod, we run a bunch of checks that are like predefined to try to identify why this pod is, is restarting. Is it a problem that is an application issue, an infrastructure issue? If it's like a node issue, if it is a node issue, why it's a node issue, what happened to the node, right? And we do all of those checks for our users. And then basically we send them an automatic report saying, you have a restarting pod. The reason it's in a crash loop back off, for example, the reason for the crash loop back off is that you did a bad deploy a couple of minutes earlier, click here to roll it back. Or if it's a node issue, we'll say, hey, you have a restarting pod. The pod that is, you know, doing the restart, the node that is using is malfunctioning. All of the pods that are using these nodes are restarting around the same time. You should probably escalate to your infrastructure team or to your DevOps team, right? So like in one click, they can see not only that they have a pod doing restart, but also is it something that I should care about because it's an application issue? Or is this something my DevOps or my SRE should care about? Because this is a node issue, right? And I think when they see it in the same timeline, right? And they see they get like a single report saying, you know, this is the symptom and this is basically the root cause. Then it clicks like, okay, now I understand like how I can significantly improve my day to day, how I can significantly reduce the number of tickets I open, how I can significantly reduce the number of escalations and time being spent on similar issues, right? So... For them, it's like seeing it in a single timeline with our report on top of it that can actually like make them understand how much time they can save or how many resources they can save using a tool like us. That would be so helpful for my life as well. We have like, <laughs> probably the flakiest set of alerts are just the container restart ones. And right now we haven't even tuned them well enough to not fire when we do deployments. So we have an alert that says, oh, pod is restarting too frequently in the last 30 minutes. But what ends up happening is you increase the number of pods in a certain deployment because, you know, that that service needs more capacity and the the alerts are not tuned. If we had something that could tell us, you know, this is normal, this happens every deployment, we should just fix it. Or, oh, it looks like it's an actual application issue. That's when it's in a crash loop would make my life easier. Yeah. So I think we spent like, I don't know, overall, maybe 10 to 15 engineering like years (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> solving only this like yeah, you know one yeah. of the challenges in kubernetes that you know basically it's you know it's a lot of resources and 
each resource has a status, right? And one of the challenges is to create a state out of it. So in Commodore, one of the, the cool things is that you can log into Commodore. Commodore basically not only tell you what the current statuses are, but basically what's healthy and what's not healthy in each one of your services or resources and how it evolved or changed over time, right? So we actually create a state out of all of the different statuses and events that we read from the Cube API itself. So basically, you know, if you just look on a pod and its status is, is not ready, right? It's something else. It's pending. It's whatever. Is it an issue or not? You don't know, right? You mm-hmm. need to check if it's in the middle of a deploy. You need to check if maybe, you know, maybe we're using spot instances and something is up and down. You need to yeah. check maybe after a couple of seconds, was it resolved? Maybe it was not resolved. Some things are transient. Some things are not transient. Like there are so many different nuances for each one of the different resource and type in Kubernetes. So if you get, just give it to someone who don't really know what Kubernetes is, his chances to being able to resolve an issue are very, very low without all of this understanding, right? Having said that, if you send it to the most senior DevOps in the team, he will tell you, oh yeah, this is how Kubernetes act. You know, this celerity, as you mentioned, is just because, you know, the deployment is being uh, running right now. Let's wait five minutes and it will automatically be resolved, right? But you definitely don't want to escalate every time there is an issue for this very, very expensive and, you know, busy DevOps, right? So this is exactly what we try. We try only to monitor on the real issues. And once we monitor, we help you to investigate also why it happened so we can actually fix it or remediate it via Commodore, hopefully in one to two clicks, rather than, you know, hours of investigation sometimes. How do you automate the fix, right? And is that scary for engineers? Like one thing that I would be very worried about is some platform acting on my orchestration platform. Like how do you kind of build that trust? First of all, what you described sounds awful. I will never let the vendor to automate anything on my production system, right? So we're being very, very, very careful around that. What we're doing, we're starting with suggestions, right? Like, hey, we noticed that. It can be caused by X, Y, and Z. Here is how we can solve X. Here is how we can solve Y. Here is how we can solve Z, right? So we started with suggestions. Once we saw our suggestions, you know, they make sense. Like users are try to follow them. We started to add actually actions from our platform. Everything that we added is being guarded behind our back. So actually, like the the platform engineers or the DevOps engineer can actually choose which teams can take which actions on which resources, right? So for example, you are probably okay with the developers that on some service to be able to restart a pod, right? Or even to do a revert on staging, okay? But you're probably definitely not okay with, you know, letting the developers to drain a node in production, right? So like you can actually choose which teams can do what, And using Commodore, we are basically suggesting them what to do, giving the functionality to do that, but they need to take the ownership and responsibility to actually make the action. We don't believe that, you know, the right move here is, you know, go to the auto-healing motion and try to automate the things for users. We know that it is hard enough for most organizations to trust themselves to make actions, but we Mm -hmm. try to take all of the heavy lifting part from it we're trying to be this single place that showing you the symptom allowing you to explore and to find the root cause suggesting you what to do with it 
allowing you to take the action to solve it. Everything is audited. Everything is under our back and SSO. But eventually, you're the person that need, you know, to decide this is the right thing to do. Click on mm-hmm. the button and, you know, hopefully to resolve the issue. And you can also probably click and track how many times are people actually clicking the button. And you can even see how useful your remediations are and like optimize that metric over time. That is the ideal place, right? You ping people when you know you should be pinging people. You let them take the action and you can track if they're taking that action over time. Exactly. The cool thing around that is that, as I mentioned, like we never just show actions arbitrary. So every time a user takes action in Commodore is because we gave them some context that they decided that the right thing to do is take this action, right? So we can actually see when we were right and we can actually yep. fine tune which suggestions we're providing our users in which kind of scenario. And sometimes, you know, we understand that what we did doesn't make sense. And sometimes we see that what we did totally makes sense. And then obviously, you know, we can improve and iterate on top of it. So in the end of the day, we do want to build this machine, right? That for almost all of the scenarios in Kubernetes already knows what are the actions or steps you should take to resolve it, right? And if we can get to this point, our customers will even benefit more from our capabilities. So we're definitely building, you know, our brain in a way that is, you know, data-driven. And we do hope to improve our suggestions and our methods around it over time. Yeah. Maybe a dumb question, but why doesn't Kubernetes have all of this stuff inbuilt? I think it's a fair question. I think, you know, some of the reason is, you know, it's, it's an open source project that, you know, basically it can go to so many different directions, you know, from adding more resources to adding more abstraction on top of it, to adding more security functionality. And, you know, there are so many different things to do. And I think specifically the, the layer that is around reliability, observability, you know, operational is usually being done historically by either vendors or, you know, the cloud providers themselves. So we don't see it organically coming from the core community of Kubernetes. Definitely, you know, might be a good addition. I do see different releases from the cloud providers on a weekly or bi-weekly basis for things around reliability and observability. So definitely, I think everyone knows that there is a huge gap there. And I think each player in the ecosystem, you know, tries to take their own perspective and their own thesis on what exactly is missing and how to solve it. And I think this is one of the things that make this project so, you know, so fascinating, right? Like how different companies, different players, different, you know, layers in the ecosystem, each one contributes something else to create this, you know, eventually amazing, amazing experience for the end user. Yeah, that, that certainly tracks, right? It's open source and then, but the fact that you have all of these like open layers lets multiple people build and make improvements. How do you keep track of, you know, adoption of new features and making sure that Commodore is satisfying the needs of customers using like new features that Kubernetes has? Like, is it kind of like a, you see what Kubernetes is doing, you see what problems there are coming based on that, you add extra stuff to Commodore. Like, how does that stuff work? How quickly does Kubernetes actually ship out new things? And like, how much of a race is it to like just keep up with what's happening in the ecosystem? Yeah, that's a good question. First of all, I am ex-Googler and my partner is from eBay. So like, we are very data-driven. So we're keeping a lot of track on what our users are doing, what are they doing in the platform? 
you know, which features they're finding more useful. We're having tons of conversations with our users. We try to be very close to our users. You know, in that in that way, we are very like product product led uh, company and not very like sales led company. So we're having you know interviews with with end users on I think on a daily basis. So we do try to keep track and to hear their pains, their insights, you know their feedback. Not only on our tool, but also on different tools in the ecosystem, say CD tools, monitoring tools, and definitely on Kubernetes itself. Now, I will say that in Kubernetes, obviously, it is changing quite a lot and adding new capabilities, etc. But what I think is is very interesting is the usage and the adoption of, of custom resources, right, of CRDs. And this is, I think, the equivalent of like a wild, wild west, right? Because everyone can create a new CRD. It can all of a sudden become super popular and, you know, it can change and you can add more functionality there. So I think that we see a lot of new CRDs all of a sudden becoming from zero popularity to being becoming very, very common in a matter of weeks or months. And then obviously us as a, as a vendor, like as a, as a solution that tries to simplify Kubernetes operation, we need very quickly to uh, understand, okay, what does the CRD does? You know, when it breaks, what do you need to do? What do you need to check? How does it interact with your other Kubernetes resources? And then basically we have some kind of a research department that does all of those things very, very quickly, translate it into product spec, and then we ship it into the product. So those things we do, I would say, even like on a weekly basis sometimes, but we are trying to to respond very fast to changes in the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And on that note of the research department, I would imagine the hiring for your company has to be of just deeply technical people who know what they're doing because this is like a deeply technical product, right? Like you have to know your aiming for the right things, you have to think about how like DevOps engineers and SREs are thinking. Is that the primary population of where you can hire from? Definitely. So we have a bunch of people coming from different backgrounds. All of our product managers, for example, were platform engineers, system Mm -hmm. engineers, or sometimes even SREs, right? So for Mm -hmm. us, you know, it's super important to hire people that have firsthand experience with the problem we're trying to solve. It is a very technical problem that does require a lot of understanding. If you want to simplify something very complex, you do need to be an expert in this in this specific complexity, right? So yeah. it is hard for us, you know, to find the right people. And I would say that the bar, you know, working for Commodore is quite high for that reason. But, you know, I think this is what makes sometimes working here a good opportunity because all of the people here are obsessed on Kubernetes, on cloud native tools, on solving complex issues, on simplifying how to solve complex issues. And, you know, when this is something that fascinates you, when this is something that uh, you find interesting, you can create awesome things together, right? So, you know, even our designers are people that are, you know, fascinated by solving complex issues and simplifying complex tasks and, you know, working together, software engineers, designers, product managers, that find this, you know, these kind of challenges interesting, the end result can sometimes be, you know, groundbreaking and, you know, non-orthodox in a lot of cases. So it is obviously a challenge to find those people. But then, you know, when you do find them, I think, you know, it can create an amazing environment uh, to work together on solving those issues. Yeah. And perhaps a similar note, not exactly the same. How is the economy pivot really affected 
your team you can say in whatever detail you'd like to see like what are you seeing from you know prospective customers is the adoption of tools like kubernetes like slowing down is the adoption of like vendors on top of kubernetes slowing down like what are you seeing generally yeah so i do see two different trends that are opposite to each other this is only obviously our own experience right i'm not claiming to say that no it's the entire landscape but Obviously, the biggest, you know, mindset right now for most companies is to do more with less, right? Like a year ago, it was growth at any cost, right? It's just grow, grow, grow. And today, what we're hearing is, you know, we need to do more, but with less, right? And this is a big, big change, right? From going to, from growth at any cost to, you know, to do more with less. And obviously, it, it translates to sometimes cutting spends, cutting budget, letting people go, right? Very talented people sometimes. And it definitely also affects us, right? I, I, I can tell you that we had POCs that the entire team used the tool. All of a sudden, you know, got a letter that they're being uh, laid off from the company. So obviously it also killed the POC, right? We reached with some companies to commercial agreement. And, you know, for some reason, now the C-level needed to approve it. And, you know, they said just how no, like we're not going to approve new tools uh, in this calendar year at all. It doesn't matter which which tool it is. We're only going to use what we already have. So obviously in some cases, we saw the, you know, the effect of what's happening in the market. I would say the second trend we're seeing is that because of companies trying to do more with less and because of the reason that, you know, those DevOps and SREs are so expensive and you have so little of them, you definitely need to guard their, their time and to make sure that you're not wasting their time on, you know, escalations, ticket and firefighting. And you do need to do more with less. So we try to understand how we can get more from what you have, right? More from my developers, more from my DevOps, more from my SREs and knock. And then a tool like Commodore that basically automates a lot of the, you know, manual operations, management and troubleshooting aspects that are, you know, happening, happening on a daily basis for most organizations, we can actually save significant amount of time, not only from the developers, but also from the DevOps and the SREs. And if indeed you can prove that you can save X amount of times, X amount of hours every week by automating those tasks, for those organizations, this is actually a good story for them to buy a tool like Commodore, right? So we can actually win, and we saw it in the last couple of months, in some POCs, that we thought, you know, they're going to decide not because of what's happening in the market. But actually, they, they told us that the management is convinced that with a tool like Commodore, they can actually reduce uh, labor hours. They can actually reduce the toil and actually can focus on the things that actually can move the needle for the business and not focus on Kubernetes troubleshooting and Kubernetes operations. So I think overall, we we see that for tools like us that can actually save time and, and automate, you know, IT tasks, Companies are still have, you know, let's say big appetite to try to purchase, but definitely th these are not easy times, right? So mm -hmm. overall, as I mentioned, like I think they they opposite to each other, those two trends. So mm -hmm. far we are, you know, we as a company are doing are doing okay, but we're definitely, you know, not being cocky or anything. And we will definitely try to understand where the market is going in 23, you know, which mm -hmm. kind of trends are going to happen. And, you know, as a company, 
we did need to make sure that we can thrive and succeed even in, in tough times. And, you know, hopefully things will, in a couple of months, will, you know, will be stabilized and improve. But we're definitely ready for, for each option. Yeah. The idea of those two trends that are in opposite directions makes a lot of sense to me. Finally, as a set of, you know, just as a technologist, right, what gets you excited about the next year, right? Like, are there, you know, some platform improvements that are coming to Commodore? Are there some capabilities that the Kubernetes API is going to provide that's going to expand what Commodore can do? Is there anything like that that gets you excited from like a technology perspective? Wow, so many. I would say that I think what I'm mostly excited is our plans to expand behind, beyond only troubleshooting. You know, when we started to talk about troubleshooting, today we're allowing ourselves to say that we, you know, we're also helping to manage, to operate, and to troubleshoot the Kubernetes clusters. What we want to do by the end of the year is to be very proactive in allowing the end users, the developers and the DevOps, basically not only to manage and to operate, but also to make sure they comply with best practices, to make sure that they run in the most cost-effective way, to make sure that they're deploying in a way that is healthy in the first place to their clusters, so they will have less issues. So if we started from a bit of a reactive place of, okay, you have an issue, how to solve it, what we want to do in the next couple of months is to start being more proactive and actually suggest and enforce different best practices, etc., so your system will be more healthy and more reliable and more cost-effective in the first place. So we have tons of new capabilities and features that we plan to roll out in the next couple of weeks and months to start and try it out. But we already got a very, very positive feedback from our beta customers that, you know, using our suggestions, best practices and enforcement, they're actually managed to reduce number of escalations, reduce number of, of issues, reduce spend using Commodore. So this is definitely something we're all super excited about. And it will be, I think, a pretty significant change and expansion for us as a company. But, you know, we can talk, we can talk in a year and say, and I can tell you how it went. <laughs> mm -hmm. Some kind of like service guardrails or like, that's the kind of stuff you're talking about. Right? Like, oh, every service should make sure they have like at least X nodes running for like availability. Is that kind of an example? There are some yeah. things that are like, can be done in the static level, right? By reading all of the configurations in YAML and yeah. to see, you know, if they're complying with the best practices. But think about like all of the dynamic stuff, right? Can you identify idle resources, right? Like, you know, you deploy the PVC, it's deployed correctly, but no one is using it, right? It's just out yeah. there. Same goes for like, you know, a config map, right? Like you just have mm -hmm. a config that no one reads and no one updated for a month, right? Can you just kill it, right? Is it a good usage of your resources? Is it a good usage of your time? So there are so many things from the static point of view, but also from the dynamic point of view, that if you can combine them both and mm -hmm. better understand what is actually deployed and what is actually being used, and if it's being used correctly or not, and then you can proactively suggest what to do with it, either to change you know, some configuration to kill this resource or to run it in a different way, right? So we're taking it from like different perspective and different approaches. And yeah, eventually it can be, you know, uh, symbolized as a scorecard and things like that. But I think, you know, the rule engine behind the scene is something that gets us very excited lately. Especially like if it's very easy to add new rules and like see 
how that rule is going to affect or like how it operates on like your organization, like how easy it is to burn that rule down in terms of like doing the migration to fix what that rule says. That is exciting. Well, thank you so much for being a guest, Ben. This was a lot of fun. And yes, I hope to have you or someone from Commodore again in a year to see how all of this goes. I can tell you that if everything goes great, it will be me. And if not, I will send my partner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that'd be great. I'd like talking to both of you. Awesome. Awesome.